We have read through 1 Peter, now we will read through 2 Peter and Jude in the next several weeks. And so let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word found in 2 Peter chapter 1. 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you might be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor endeavor that ye may be able, after my decrease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but, the, but holy men of God spake as they were moved 
by the Holy Ghost. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as we consider this first passage this morning from chapter 1, I think it's important for us by way of introduction to discuss something of the authorship of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is one of those few epistles in the New Testament that has been brought under great controversy because there are many scholars, there are many uh, churchmen, there are many pastors who have denied the authorship of 2 Peter attributed to the Apostle. And this is something that goes way back even among uh, skeptics and scholars who have not only denied the authorship of 2 Peter as being written by Peter the Apostle, but even the book of Hebrews has come under scrutiny because of not mentioning any author, and so they question even whether it should be in the canon. And yet this epistle is one of those sources of controversy that rages even today among so-called scholars and churchmen. Many modern and liberal scholars deny it as written by the Apostle Paul, and many would argue that it is one of the disputed books that the early church would not include in its canon. When we speak of the canon, we speak of those books that comprise the New Testament. But this is a false argument because the early church never came together to determine what books should be included in the New Testament. Our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 clearly states that God immediately inspired all the books of the Old and New Testament and by His care and providence kept it pure in all ages And therefore, those books are authentic. The early church, very early on, recognized all of the books of the New Testament as from God. And yet, there are still those who are intent on stating that it was the church who formed the canon. But as we think about this epistle, I think there's a number of things that um, are worth our looking into as we understand the authorship of Second Peter. This epistle bears the testimony to Peter as its author. And there are five reasons why we would state this. First of all, in the greeting in verse 1 of chapter 1, the apostle Peter identifies himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Peter the same one who wrote 1 Peter, sends greetings to the church bearing his name not only as a servant of God, but as an apostle. We also see here, and it's borne out in this text, that Peter was a witness of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is particularly noted there in verses 15 and 16. Thirdly, Peter was familiar with Paul's epistles, and he refers to Paul as our beloved brother. When you look over in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 15, it states, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, 
even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And so Peter here refers to the Apostle Paul as our beloved brother, speaking of the Apostles. And then the fourth reason is there in Second Peter as well as First Peter, Peter was very familiar with the Old Testament. Fifthly, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Peter says this, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. And so Peter refers to this as his second epistle, which is written to the church. And so all of these testimonies show that this book bears the mark of apostolic authority. Unlike those pseudepigrapha books of the first century that were being promoted by false teachers. Pseudepigrapha books were false books that bared apostolic authority even though they had no apostolic authority. And so Peter writes these things for the benefit and for the encouragement of the people. And so we see that he bears testimony as an apostle and a servant of Christ Jesus. The early church recognized the internal evidence within the text as being from Paul, and by way of external evidence, they believed that this was written by the apostle Peter. And so as we consider this chapter... And as we come to this epistle, I want us to see that this book is divided in two ways. First, it's divided in chapter 1 as an encouragement to the church to press on. And then in the remainder of the book, in chapters 2 and 3, there's a warning that's given to the church regarding the false teachers that will rise up within their midst. And so as he has reminded them in his first epistle that there would be persecution and suffering that would come to the church as a result of their faith. And so Peter reminds them to persevere in the midst of suffering, to persevere in the midst of a church that is being ravaged by false teaching and false doctrine. And so in chapter verses 3 through 11... Peter begins to exhort the the church to diligently pursue holiness by putting on these Christian virtues. There as he begins, we see by way of introduction, as I have already alluded to, that Peter addresses the church as an apostle and as a servant of Christ Jesus. And he writes this, and I think this is important there in verse 1, to note that he writes this to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. And so he's saying, they, you as the church have obtained the same precious faith that we as the apostles have obtained. And so he refers to that precious faith that is worth more than gold or silver, that precious faith that will come under attack, that fresh, precious faith that will be tried. But it is through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ that we, as believers in Christ, have obtained this righteousness. 
this faith. And so he addresses them with that familiar apostolic greeting, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Salvation and spiritual growth, the Apostle Paul, Peter says, comes by the knowledge of God. This is the theme of Paul's epistle, that he desires that they progress in sanctification and holiness. There is no life rooted in Christ without this progressive or ongoing work of sanctification. If one claims to be a follower of Christ, if one claims to identify himself with Christ, and there is no ongoing work of sanctification, there is no ongoing work of progressive holiness, even though it's imperfect, he cannot claim to be a Christian. And so Peter is very clear on that. Verse 3, he says he's given us grace and power for all things pertaining to life and to godliness. Peter says this gift is made ours by the knowledge of his will. How do we know that we are sinners? How do we know that we need the grace of God? How do we know that we are called to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ if it has not been revealed to us? It is through the word of God that these things are revealed. And so it is that knowledge of the word of God that we come to walk in this way that he calls us to walk. There in verse 3, he refers to that divine power or that divine nature as he shows in verse 4. It is through this divine power that we are given precious promises which are fulfilled in Christ. And so, believer, every promise pertaining to our salvation, every promise pertaining to that life that we have in Christ, every promise is given to us as a precious gift so that we might partake of that divine nature. Now, it's worth stating here in verse 4, when Peter says that we might be partakers of the divine nature, it's not that false notion that is taught within Eastern Orthodoxy, that when we receive salvation from God, that we are infused with that, that God nature, that we become as, as Christ, we become as God. That is not the notion here. And even some that teach this today, that we become like Christ. That's not what the apostle is saying. He said it is through those promises that we receive from God that we are able to partake of that divine life. It is not a participation in the substance and nature that God possesses. But it is our sharing in His holiness. If you go back to First Peter... Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is why we believe both of these epistles are written by Peter, because they both correspond quite well. Verse 15 of 1 Peter, chapter 1, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written in Leviticus 19, 2, he that hath called you is holy, 
because so be holy for I am holy and so Peter says that we are holy because God is holy we are holy because we have received that righteousness that comes by way of Christ's imputation so having been made holy Peter says we can escape the corruption of the world you know there's a lot of corruption and the corruption continues to grow and this should not be a surprise to believers i think many people who claim to be christians are so surprised by what we see in the world today this should not be a surprise we live in a corrupt world we live in a world that's dominated by sin and so peter says that through the the righteousness that we have received from christ we can escape the corruption of the world now he's not talking about leaving the world he's not talking about retreating from the world so we're not affected by the corruption but he says our natures are not corrupted because we have received the righteousness which comes from Christ so we see the blessing of God's grace in us and so as he continues to remind us of these things we come to verses 5 through 11 where he exhorts us to grow there in verses 5 through 7, Peter says, And beside this, having been given grace through the righteousness of Christ, having been made holy, now having that progressive sanctification working in us, give all the more diligence to add to your faith these things. Add to your faith. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Peter's very clear that if one is going to be a follower of Christ, if one is going to be identified with Christ, then he must make all the more certain that these virtues are in his life. And so... Here he says that the Christian is to add virtue to his life and these other Christian graces. These are opposite of the world's virtues. When we see the so-called virtue of the world, when we see the world espousing its own view of morality, this always is opposite of the world. And so he says to add to your faith virtue. That virtue is moral excellence. It relates to the character of God. If one is going to regard himself as holy, if one is going to be a follower of Christ, then he must have that moral excellence. That's not perfectionism. We do not hold to the doctrine of perfectionism. We will always be imperfect in this life. And yet that moral excellence relates to God's character. In our day when we see churchmen who have no virtue, when we see uh, leaders within our government, whether it be in our state or our national government, as we see businesses and educational system where people fail because they have no moral excellence. There is no integrity because they don't have the character of God. And sadly, we see little 
of this virtue even in the visible church today. And yet integrity and moral character should be evident in the life of the Christian. And so he says, to that virtue, add temperance. Temperance or moderation. He states here that the believer should have self-control, not only in food and drink, but in the disciplines of his life. Christians should never be out of control when it comes to drink. A Christian should never be out of control when it comes to food. A Christian should never be out of control when it comes to how he lives his life. And so he says to add this temperance to these virtues. And then he continues on and states that not only add temperance, but patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. These things are virtues that every Christian should possess. How patient are we toward one another? How kind are we toward one another? How do we show charity, love? Peter says these things we must add to give evidence of true saving faith. So verses 8 through 9, he says that the believer must be increasing in holiness, that he should cultivate these characters in his life. And so the question this morning for us is, are you progressing? Are you progressing in your sanctification or are you barren and without fruit? That's what Peter reminds us here, that the one who lacks these things is blind and cannot see. And so we must cultivate these characters. We must make certain that these things are evident in our life. Verses 10 and 11 could be a sermon text, but for the sake of time, I want to stress the importance of verses 10 through 11, because here he states, Wherefore, brethren, give diligence... Make certain that your calling and election are sure. Well, wait a minute. Why would a Christian want to make sure that his calling and election is sure? Isn't it sure? And yet he says progressively, there should be diligence to make certain that it is, it is true. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says in... Question 36, what are the benefits which flow from sanctification? And some of you children can answer this question. But those benefits which flow from sanctification are the assurance of God's love, the peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, and the increase of grace and perseverance to the end. Thomas Watson says that sanctification is the feed of, Assurance is the flower which grows out of it. Assurance, he says, is the consequence of sanctification. Watson goes on to say that all Christians have a right to assurance. And he believed that all Christians do have assurance to some degree, even though many do not feel or experience this assurance. 
He says, sometimes God can withhold assurance from us to make us more holy, to make us humble, to make us depend upon the Lord. But he says, when God withholds that assurance from us, he sometimes draws us unto himself. He withholds that assurance, the sealing work of assurance by the Spirit may be withheld even though we have that sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now that is troublesome to modern Reformed people because what is the work, the sealing work of the Spirit? Many of the Puritans believe, and this was the position of Martin Lloyd-Jones, that one may not understand that he has assurance or he may have little understanding of assurance, but it is the sealing work of the Holy Spirit that testifies to the fact that he has this assurance with God. Sometimes our assurance can be in doubt because we're not living a holy life. Sometimes our assurance can be in doubt because we are walking contrary to the things of God. But I draw your attention to Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. There's a lot here in this passage, but just for the sake of time, I want to refer to this verse. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so He enables us to understand that we are children of God because the Spirit bears testimony to it. There is a sealing work of the Spirit that grants the believer that true assurance. More could be said on that subject at another time, but just to bring that out in the context of our verse here, Peter says, make certain that your calling and election are sure. Make sure that you have the, the joy of your salvation. Make sure that you have that assurance that you are in good standing with Christ. Peter concludes this epistle with some incentives for heeding his exhortation. The first exhortation is there in verses 12 through 15, where he reminds them in light of his impending death to remember these things that he has taught them. And so Peter says, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, even though you know them. I think this is true. All of us as Christians know many of these things, and yet we need to be reminded of them. And there in verse 13, he states that, Yea, I think it right or meet as long as I am in this tabernacle or this body of flesh to stir you up by way of remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle even as the Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. This epistle was written in 67 A.D., and Peter was martyred shortly after he wrote these epistles. During the reign of the emperor Nero, Peter was put to death in Rome. And so he reminds them that shortly, I will put off this body of flesh. So I endeavor 
to be able to remind you of these things as long as I have breath. But there's a second incentive he gives the church for this exhortation. And that is the certainty of the apostolic witness. He refers briefly there, verses 16 through 18, to that apostolic witness that comes to him. The apostolic witness refers to him seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory on that mount of transfiguration. He refers there in verse 16 to the fact that we, that is the apostles, have not followed devised fables, cunningly devised fables, which were made known to you by the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is key to the sermon this morning. The power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the future age. The coming and power of the Lord Jesus Christ was that earthly ministry of Christ when he appeared to them on that Mount of Transfiguration, when he showed them his glory. He says in verse 17, For we received from the Father honor and glory when that voice came, when we saw that excellent glory. Then he refers to that account that takes place there in that Mount of Transfiguration. But also we see that not only that Mount of Transfiguration, but he also refers thirdly to the certainty of the prophetic word. Notice Peter here does not dismiss those visions that he saw along with others as apostles. But he says there's something more sure than that witness that they had. And that is that sure word of prophecy. He concludes there by saying that we have something more sure. And that is that word of prophecy. That word that comes from God. And then he says in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. And then he concludes there in verse 21 by stating that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And here Peter reminds them that even though the scriptures were written by human writers who produced the scriptures, they were not its ultimate source of authority. Those apostles and those apostolic witnesses who wrote those New Testament books and letters were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He breathed, that word was breathed out. The divine author of the scriptures is God himself. Therefore, every word, every jot, everything written in the scripture is without error. It is the very word of God. And it is that certainty that we have of our salvation. And when one doubts their assurance, where do they go? They go to the scriptures. When one doubts their assurance, where do they go? They go to the promises of God. They go to the word of God, which is able to stir their souls. And as we think on this passage, and there's a lot in this passage, I think it's important for us to see that Peter 
like Paul, puts much emphasis on the doctrine of justification and sanctification. And even though our sanctification is a lifelong process, the believer must bear fruit and he must be diligent to add to that virtue and those things that he has reminded us of. Christian, do you have that assurance of God's love? Do you have that understanding of these things that Peter writes to us? There's great blessing in understanding the promises of God. Yet in understanding the blessings of the promises of God, we are called to diligently pursue. How do you diligently pursue something? You don't just give it a passing thought, but you make progress, you make certain of your calling and your election. And so as we consider these things from 1 Peter chapter 1, let us remember that we are called as believers to progress. And when there is no evidence of sanctification in the life of the believer, of the one who professes to be a believer, no amount of convincing will show him that he is right with God without that sanctification. And so I would call you to add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, and these things, so that we might progress in holiness, so that we might grow in every grace unto that full assurance that the Spirit gives us by that sealing work. Amen. Let us sing to the glory of our God, Psalm 119L. Moreover, forevermore in heaven, O Lord.